TED Audio Collective. Hey everybody, it's Manoush here. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor Cognizant for supporting this season of ZigZag. We're so grateful. And they're doing some interesting things over at Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work. They are doing research and coming up with best practices for your company and career as things change during these turbulent times. To learn more, head to cognizant.com slash future of work. That's C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T com slash future of work. Hey. Hey. <sighs> Who are you? What's your name? Where are we? I'm your sister. <laughs> Gita. Um, mm-hmm. So we're on vacation, right? No, we're not on vacation. <laughs> we're living outside of New York City. For the past several months, my kids, my husband, and my siblings and I have been hunkered down off and on near my parents in New Jersey. And my sister's right. It has not been a vacation. The household duties seem to have multiplied, especially our waste management. Okay. (laughs) So what's in this bag over here? Okay. So we've got a bag full of plastics of a certain grade. Yes. <laughs> but we also, over there by the regular garbage, have another recycling container mm-hmm. with plastics of a different grade. Why do we have so many recycling containers all over our house right now? Well, because we're in New Jersey, where they don't recycle the things they recycle in New York, we're having a moment of uh, conflict. Tension? Right. So what we've been doing is collecting all the recyclables that can't be recycled in New Jersey. And then when one of us goes back to New York City, they take that big bag of recycling to New York City where we think recycling is still happening. What I also find entertaining is when we go to our parents' house and we look in the recycling. And even though I've told mom, like, Mm. she can't recycle certain things, she keeps putting them in recycling. Do you know that term, wish cycling? Wish cycling. Yeah. Wishful thinking. Just total denial. (laughs) Yep. Well, denial, hope for a better system. A better world, even? (laughs) Even a better world. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is ZigZag, the business podcast about being human. We have so many issues to tackle right now. The coronavirus, systemic racism, a recession. But the state of our planet continues to nag at the back of all of our minds. Even before the pandemic, I heard from several of you who are putting the environment at the heart of your business model. Like Meredith. My name is Meredith, and I run a company called Common Ground Compost. We're based in New York City, and we help businesses compost and recycle through consulting services and by picking up compost by bicycle. We are working on the biggest contract we've ever landed. We're super excited about it. We're going to be working with a real estate company to help them bring composting to their high-rise offices in Manhattan. We're thrilled that this company is taking on this responsibility of offering this service to all of their individual tenants. The more that do it, the more of a future we might have for ourselves here. I checked in with Meredith about whether that rosy future felt kaput now that people are working from home and those midtown high-rises are mostly empty. She says that government assistance has kept the company alive and that they've pivoted 
common ground compost now does home pickup, especially since the city stopped collecting compost because of budget cuts. And so Meredith's company is holding on. And you know what, Meredith? That's amazing. Survive now, thrive later is my mantra these days. And meanwhile, we're all using this time to rejigger our habits, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I am ordering a heck of a lot less takeout that comes in big plastic containers. So, yay! Less plastic to recycle, more eggshells to compost. But that behavior change isn't great for all the restaurants who've had to lay off their staff and in some cases shut down entirely. That conflict, that tension, it goes way beyond the restaurant industry, way beyond food, to the economy, and a much bigger question. Can we align our daily habits, ones that are good for the planet, with creating new jobs and companies, rebuilding our economy in ways that also provide for healthier humans? Oof, that's a huge question. Because when we get rid of things, from recycling to donating all those ugly t-shirts with company logos that you got as swag at a conference last year. When those things leave us, they go on a zigzagging journey. I think if we better understand that journey, it can inspire us to keep going, keep our eye on the horizon towards building companies and cultures that value things differently, maybe even help save our planet. I want you to meet our guide for this episode, the person who's going to help us understand that journey and whose profile is pretty interesting, too. My name is Adam Minter. I'm a columnist with Bloomberg Opinion. Adam's the author of two books, Junkyard Planet and Secondhand. And several of you, dear listeners, suggested having him on. What a great idea. Thank you. Because not only is Adam an expert on the recycling and secondhand economies, he cares deeply about how we humans live with our stuff. I would rather sit at a donation door at a Goodwill than go to a movie. It's just so fascinating (laughs) what comes through it. Adam lives in Malaysia now, but he grew up in Minnesota. And his relationship to recycling goes back generations. It explains a lot about him and, well, economics generally. So let's start there. Now, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that your grandfather entered the United States the same way that my husband's grandfather did, which was via Galveston, Texas. My great-grandfather, actually. Oh, my your great-grandfather. Yes. Yeah, he came through Galveston, Texas. Um, my understanding is he needed to flee Russia and the czar, um, but he also had ambitions to be in show business, to be in vaudeville. And, you know, it would have been better for him, I think, if he had landed in New York rather than Galveston. But <laughs> for all kinds of reasons, uh, the boats were going to Galveston at that point. So that's where he ended up and landed, and he didn't speak any English. English, he didn't really have any skills, and he had all the wrong ambitions. So he ended up being a rag picker on the streets of Galveston, Texas. Right. I said that to my husband, and he's like, oh, the schmata business. 
And I was like, exactly. I was like, what is this schmata business of which you speak? Can you explain what a rag picker even is? Sure. We have accounts of people picking rags, you know, dating back 500 years in Europe. And what it basically is, is somebody who goes around and literally collects, picks fabric that other people don't want. They would either refashion it in some form, use bits of it for clothing, or you really started seeing in the 18th century, it would be collected, purchased, and used for making paper because linen and cotton make very good paper. And so over the decades and over the centuries, that uh, business has persisted and become industrialized so that even today, there are people who pick rags, except that they tend to be um, clothing recycling facilities and they'll pull the clothing out of the piles of of recycled clothes that arrive and pick out the ones that would make good rags and those clothes would be cut up and turned into wiping rags, which could be sold to any number of different kinds of businesses, whether bars and restaurants or, say, car washes, people who just need things to wipe things down with. And in a way, your great-grandfather's job as a rag picker, it kind of became, well, sort of the family business in that your grandfather and your father got into the junkyard business. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, he started out as a rag picker, but he did not stay with uh, textiles. We're not sure why he ended up in Minneapolis, but that's where he ended up. And he started a scrapyard there. It was originally called ABC Metals um, because that was the way to get it to be the first item in the yellow pages. If you have no education, if you don't speak the language, well, you can always go and pick through the garbage and find what you want to find and be able to sell it. So it's a global profession. You know, it just so happens that, you know, my grandfather was sort of a, the Galveston branch of this very hardworking profession, which persists to this day. And speaking to you from Malaysia right now, I mean, the Malaysian Indians who primarily do sort of the rag picking um, here in Kuala Lumpur, you know, my great grandfather, if he came to Kuala Lumpur today and saw what they were doing, he would recognize it immediately. They're in the same line of work. So before we get to why you live in Kuala Lumpur, I just want to talk a little bit about your upbringing. So you grew up around junkyards, right? Yeah. Some of my earliest memories are walking in the warehouse, you know, seeing these barrels of, say, plumber scrap, stuff that plumbers came and sold to my father, you know, that they had taken out of homes, old pipes, old fixtures. And we would take them apart and separate, you know, the brass from, say, the steel screws or whatever it would be in there, the electrical scrap. And so that kind of business really... Um, you know, it's it's very deeply ingrained within me and uh, especially uh, the buying and selling and just learning to value things that other people don't value. But it's not until I was older that I really began to see how that upbringing impacted me. So let's talk about that. You decided not to go into the family business, and yet I really think you kind of are in the family business. What happened in terms of you deciding what your career path would be? Sure. Well, there were a couple of things going on. One, um, as much as I loved the business and I love being around the junk, if you will, um, I also found out that I don't have a whole lot of business sense, which I think <laughs> is a great disappointment, Aww. both to my father and grandmother. And then there was just the simple fact that I liked writing. I was aware that I was good at it. And so I started thinking, how can I transition into a career as a writer? And and one of the routes to doing that was actually I started writing for scratch 
scrap paper trade magazines, including a magazine called Scrap Magazine, which was based in Washington, D.C. And so that was really my inflection point where I was able to sort of leave the business, but not entirely leave the business. And it worked out really well because it's not just about picking through the junk. There really is specialized knowledge and there is a culture of the scrap recycling business that I was a part of and that I understood, but I can walk into a scrapyard or I can, you know, walk down the street in a place like Beijing, China and go up to somebody and start talking to him and he'll be very suspicious of me. But when I tell him, look, I grew up in this business. My great grandfather was in this business. We used to pick through the stuff you're picking through. I can talk to him about what he does. Suddenly the relationship changes. And so that's given me unique access to this entire world for, you know, the better part of 20 years. What I love about hearing your career path is that it kind of tracks the global economy (laughs) in that you went from being hyper-local with business when you're growing up in your father's junkyard to really almost following where all those things might have gone across the world. How did you decide that that was where you wanted to go with the stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think like most careers that have gone pretty well, I got very lucky. You know, my first introduction to China was really going over there for a freelance assignment with Scrap Magazine. At the time, in 2002, that I first went to Shanghai, you know, that was really when the U.S.-China recycling trade was really picking up, and they were paying top dollar for U.S. scrap metal, um, U.S. scrap paper, U.S. scrap plastics. You know, people characterize this trade as dumping. It was never dumping. The Chinese would pay for this stuff sight unseen because there was just so much demand for the raw materials. I mean, incredible fortunes were made, fortunes like you wouldn't believe. Uh, You know, there was a company that I I visited a few times where they made enough money to uh, build a moat around what was basically a one square mile scrapyard and stock it with sport fish that the owner of it used to go into a boat, drive around and catch them around his scrapyard. So I was there for that, and I was there for sort of the decline of it, um, which, you know, started right around 2011, 2012, where the price of labor in China started going up, and the Chinese government wanted to become more of a high-end manufacturer. And some of the recycling companies that I knew started transitioning into Southeast Asia. Can we just dive into this? Because as someone who I live in the United States, I, I do my best. I sort my recycling. I put it out on the curb. Well... Actually, my husband puts it out on the curb and somebody (laughs) picks it up and takes it away. But like my brother came over the other day. He's like, I just don't think they're really recycling our stuff. They just throw it into the back all together and smush it. Like, I I just feel like there's so many mixed messages about what is happening with our things here in the United States. But we want to do the right thing. Right. Well, so what you and I think of as recycling, home recycling. You put your cans in the blue bin or green bin or whatever color bin it is. That's not really recycling. That's harvesting. You're harvesting your recyclables for the recycling company, meaning they're the ones who uh, start packaging it and sending it off to manufacturers who use those recyclables as, as raw materials. So as a general rule in the United States, about two-thirds of the stuff that is put in recycling bins, and most of what's recycled in the United States and other countries 
industries is actually not coming out of homes, but it's actually coming out of manufacturers and farming operations. But two-thirds of the stuff actually is recycled domestically. That is, it's sorted and then resold to manufacturers uh, domestically. The problem is, is that Americans, and for that matter, Japanese and Europeans and all these other countries, are very wasteful. And so they generate more recyclables than their manufacturers can possibly use. Um, it's impossible for them to use that stuff. And so one third tends to go into export markets. So when people ask me, you know, where's my recycling going? My answer is always, well, you know, the, the question you really need to be asking is who wants to use low cost raw materials? Recycling is all about manufacturing. I know we've made it out to be, you know, about the environment, but unless somebody wants to make something from it, it's not recyclable. So when somebody sends their recycling to the recycling center in the United States in New York City, no, it's not immediately going to a dump. And they're certainly not putting it on a barge to a developing country to burn it in a developing country because it'd be cheaper to just burn it in an incinerator in the United States. If they can, they are going to be selling it to somebody who wants to use it for manufacturing. Canada right now is the number one importer of U.S. recycling, and the U.S. imports recycling from Canada because there's different types of recycling. Um, it's as you know, it's as diverse as the various kinds of raw materials out there on the planet. So you know, don't stop recycling. It just it just has to make a certain amount of economic sense for the companies doing it. You did write an article recently called, and it, it broke my heart. It was called "No One Wants Your Old Clothes Anymore," and that headline made me so sad because indicated to me that I can no longer donate my clothes to Salvation Army guilt-free because you say that this statistic just blew my mind. Between 2000 and 2015, global clothing production doubled while the average number of times that we wore something before we got rid of it was down by over a third. Right. (laughs) Right. Our relationship to clothes changed. Our relationship to clothes changed. You know, this is a long-term trend, you know, whereby people are buying and using clothes less and less. And it dates back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Clothes used to be homemade. And so if you homemade clothes, you really take care of them to the point now where we're buying buying clothes and throwing them away as disposable goods because the fabrics, for example, can be so cheap that they don't last, you know, a second wash. The other part of what's happening and that's really sinking the global secondhand clothing trade is the fact that the traditional markets for secondhand clothes, emerging markets, the African continent is the largest uh, market for uh, secondhand clothes globally, um, they're becoming more affluent. And just like everybody else, um, once you know you get a degree of affluence, uh, you tend to want to buy new stuff. And so the demand is going down. You know, everybody is so focused these days on, well, in the United States, we have Poshmark and we have ThreadUp and The Real Real and all these great apps, and they are great, but they are just the frosting on the secondhand clothing cake. It's a tiny, tiny piece of it. You know, I'm a big proponent of the global trade in secondhand goods, but but the fact is, you know, once you start shipping things or even dropping things off at the Goodwill or the Salvation Army, you're generating carbon emissions. So if you're looking at it from an environmental standpoint, keep it in your home and wear it and use it as long as you can. And if that means cutting it up into rags that you use to clean your countertops, amen. Okay, so take those old Navy T-shirts turn them into schmatas, just like Adam's great-grandfather did. Well, not old Navy t-shirts, but you know what I mean. 
And I've got a broader question, one that plagues me. Isn't buying all those t-shirts actually a good thing? Because as we've always been told in the U.S., when we go shopping, we're supporting the economy. And if the economy stops growing, then disaster, right? Adam's answer after a quick break. How's that for a nerdy cliffhanger? Hey everyone, Manoush here. A quick shout out to Cognizant for sponsoring this season of ZigZag. As you know, investigating the transformation of tech and business is kind of my thing. And it's what Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work does too. They research how work is changing and will change because of new technology and big global events. One of their recent reports that caught my eye... Five green-collar jobs of the future. It describes specific careers that will help us all fight climate change and can help you strategize your next business or career move. I mean, have you ever heard of a Tidewater architect? Very cool. For all their reports, books, podcasts, and more, head to Cognizant.com slash Future of Work. That's C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T dot com slash Future of Work. We're back with author and global supply chain slash recycling slash secondhand economy expert, Adam Minter. So this might sound like a very naive question, but consumer spending is one way that countries measure how healthy their economy is, right? So, like, what if we stopped buying new stuff? Like, we've come to believe that our buying habits aren't just normal, but they're good and actually they are vital to our nation. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the difficulties I had was finding data on secondhand industries anywhere. What's being reused? How many garage sales are being held in the United States? Government officials don't record it because the way we measure a successful economy is through the sale of new widgets. It's manufacturing. What is growth? Manufacturing growth. You never see secondhand growth. That's not an economic figure. For me, it's become a real pet peeve because if you spend time in Africa, you will see secondhand is the stuff of daily life. People clothe themselves in secondhand clothes. They use secondhand phones. They buy secondhand furniture. I mean, that's the economy. And yet it's not measured. And so, you know, if you ask me, well, what happens if we stop measuring new stuff? In a sense, we already do that in places like Africa. And and people say the economy doesn't exist, you know, but in fact, we know it exists because people are using all the secondhand stuff. But some of these emerging economies, their goal is to not be using secondhand stuff, right? Like, even if we get it together here in, like, Europe and the United States, there are other countries where they are just at the beginning of their consumerist identity forming in some way, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I spent quite a bit of time uh, in a place called Tamale, Ghana, which is in the north. Um, Spent weeks up there. In Tamale, I met um, a couple young men who were the top of their class in engineering at the local technical college. And they came out and they wanted to get jobs in factories making new stuff. But Ghana just doesn't have those. And you have to be very connected to get jobs in the ones where they do have them. So what did they end up doing? They ended up being highly skilled, highly knowledgeable, 
people who repair computers imported from the United States. And these young men who wanted to work in factories have become extraordinarily skillful at fixing these things, skillful to the point where they will you know, have microscopes and micro-soldering irons, and they'll go in and they'll make tiny repairs on the motherboards of these things, which you'd be very hard-pressed to find somebody doing in the United States. And they're fantastic. I mean, I loved spending time with these guys, but you know, if a computer company, new computer company moved into town tomorrow and was looking for engineers, these would be the first people in line to go and work there. I think it's human nature, not just American nature, but human nature to want the shiny and new. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. Um, But I guess there is a buzzword that a lot of us here are hearing, the circular economy. Like, what can you actually define what that is and explain if this is the answer to some of these environmental issues that we have? So circular economy, uh, you know, it's been floating around for a couple decades at least, and it's just the idea that we shouldn't have anything leaving our loop of consumption. So you buy a product, you use that product, it goes to a waste management professional who takes it apart and sends the various pieces to various recycling factories that recycle it and then send those raw materials to manufacturers who make a new widget and you buy that widget. And you never need to dig a hole in the ground or cut down a tree or dig an oil well. And especially in Europe and the United States, people think that the circular economy should only function within their borders. So for example, they want a circular economy in Germany. And, you know, the idea of exporting their old stuff, secondhand stuff to emerging markets would be considered sort of anathema to the idea of a circular economy. I've objected to that because I think a true circular economy needs to be global, that people who are manufacturing should be able to buy the stuff they want to manufacture with. And, you know, if they want it to be recyclable, then they should be able to buy that recyclable from Germany. I think this idea of sort of closing off economies from each other is is ultimately bad for the environment because not every economy is going to manufacture every little thing and not every economy is going to have the capacity, nor should it, to recycle every little thing. You're basically saying that like this whole reuse, recycle thing should be a global economy and that actually, you know, despite the fact that you have to pay for shipping costs and there's carbon emissions and all those things that come along with that, that actually maybe that's a bigger, broader way of looking at it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm a big proponent of globalized recycling. Think about China um, again, you know. I mean, go back to the mid-1980s when China first started importing recyclables from the United States. You know, for example, copper, which needs to be mined. If they could not import that copper from the United States, that recycled copper from the United States, where would they have gotten it? They would have contracted to dig a hole in Indonesia or, or somewhere nearby. You know, they were going to develop and they were going to use raw materials. I'm I'm not idealistic about this stuff. I'm very pragmatic about it. You know, you could say I grew up in the recycling industry, and that's true. I think of it as I grew up in the raw materials industry, and people want to use raw materials. So where do you want them to get those raw materials? And I would say they're better off importing it from a, a scrapyard in Minneapolis than they are digging a hole in the ground. And that's really hard for a lot of people to swallow because, you know, like any raw material industry, you know, it's not always pretty. It's a manufacturing industry. But I will tell you, I have traveled the world and I have seen the absolute worst, the absolute worst that recycling has to offer. And I would take that any day. What is the worst? I would say the worst I ever saw was Wenan, China, northern China which uh, that was a whole county devoted to the recycling of plastics. Uh, the really horrible part of it was that they would melt down the plastics in these closed rooms and re-extrude them. And uh, the people working in these rooms had no ventilation. And so they were breathing these fumes. 
And after visiting these factories, we found a doctor and asked him about sort of what had been going on in health and went on over the years. And he said, well, before the uh, plastics factories came in, you know, people would die in their 60s. You might see people having strokes in their 60s, but now they're, they're dying in their 20s oh um, from strokes because they're essentially plasticizing their lungs. So that was the worst I've seen. But it, and that's pretty bad. But I will tell you, if you're going to be realistic about this, I would rather have a place like Wenon and upgrade Wenon, not as it was, than I would uh, seeing you know oil wells being drilled off the coast of California or off the coast of Florida or in any other threatened habitat. I mean, these are the kinds of choices we have to make as sort of uh, as human beings that consume and will always consume. You can never have a totally secondhand economy. Everything wears out. You're going to need raw materials, but you know it's a question of where are you going to get them. And so, on balance, that's not to excuse anything I've seen because I've been critical of it. But on balance, I'd rather see this stuff recycled than I would see it dug out of the ground or clear cut. So I want to use this last part of our conversation to sort of look at this issue from the perspective of the people who are probably listening to our show, who mostly live in the United States, definitely some Canadians, Australians, hello Australians, uh, Kiwis, UK, uh, Israel, I know, Germany, but places where uh, late capitalism is, (laughs) that's where it's at right now and all the issues that come with it. You said a sentence that really struck me, that people in consumption-based societies assemble their identities via stuff. Yeah. So I started recognizing this phenomenon really after my mother passed away. I think in developed consumer economies, we've sort of reached a stage where there's almost two periods of mourning. We do mourn the person who has left us. But, you know, we all acquire so much stuff in the course of a lifetime. So then there's a second period where we have to figure out what do we do with all of these things that have been left behind? And if you've ever been through this, there comes this moment where you, you're looking at some things and you say, this object, this you know, porcelain cat uh, sat on my mother's side table and she loved it. But the fact of the matter is, I don't. (laughs) And not only that, I'm living in a one-bedroom apartment in Shanghai with my wife, and I have nowhere to put it. And so what do do we do with these things? And as part of this book, I started spending time with people who help seniors um, declutter their homes and downsize their homes in advance of, you know, either, you know, moving to a hospice or moving to senior housing. And it was a very profound and moving experience because you saw how tightly people hold on to these things that they acquired over the course of a lifetime that they don't even use anymore, but it symbolized something to them. And their whole identity may be wrapped up in these three-bedroom apartments. And that moment where somebody has to say, you know, this wedding china, you know, I was going to keep it for my whole life. And when you let go of that, you're letting go of a piece of yourself. You see how it can become a bit of a mania, but also how we've invested too much of ourselves in these consumer societies, in our stuff, and not perhaps enough into the relationships and the experiences that really uh, constitute a lifetime. I mean, you you also say that one of the things that people really want is they're willing to give up their stuff 
if they believe that it's going to go to someone else who can really use it or who really wants it, that our identities are wrapped up in this idea that what I chose has value and someone else will appreciate it. Absolutely. Meaning almost like they appreciate me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the clean-out professionals I spent time with in the States and in Japan, um, they're also kind of like counselors, And they really need to reassure people as they let go of stuff that somebody is going to want it. And and I saw this repeatedly. You know, somebody was reluctant to let go of something and, and a cleanup professional said, don't worry, there's a really great market for Tupperware still at Goodwill. You have this moment in the book, actually, where you you just mentioned your mom's, like, cat figurines, where you're going through a box yeah. in, I think, a Goodwill, and you spot, and you're like, oh, my God, it's the cat figurines. Yeah. I saw these two porcelain cats, and they were the same cats my mother had. And, you know, I immediately choked up. It was very emotional to me. She'd been gone a few years, and, and that was my reaction. I'm going to go ask Kathy, the manager, if I can buy these before they put them out on the floor. And then I, I really, I stopped myself. And and I said, what am I doing? I wouldn't have taken these from her home. You know, it's lovely that I was here to see them again, but it's just stuff. And that was a big moment for me to be able to let go a little bit like that. No regrets. You know, my only regret is that I didn't snap a photo of them with my phone. I really wish I had. A lot of the people listening to the show are trying to think of ways whether it's how they run their businesses or the places where they work, trying to think of ways that they can be more sustainable. And I don't mean that just environmentally. I mean, like, sustainable for their mental health, sustainable for how they treat their employees, how they run their business. What do you think we can learn from the business models of all these people that you have talked to around the world, from junkyard owners and recycling business people? How can we apply what they do to our ways of working and running our businesses here, would you say? That's been a recurring theme in my life, and it's a recurring theme in my reporting, this idea that there is no universal definition of waste. We each have an individual definition of waste. And assume that somebody somewhere else is seeing, you know, possibilities in that thing that you aren't. 10-year-old phones that don't work anymore, somebody is going to be fixing those at the Alaba market in Nigeria and reselling them. And I find that really inspiring. You know, I was at the uh, Amcourt Mall flea market in Pataling Jaya, Malaysia, and I was seeing all this heavy oak furniture. And I just went up to one of the sellers and, and I asked her where in Malaysia she's getting this stuff. And she said, I'm not getting it in Malaysia. I'm importing it from the UK. And I suddenly put two and two together. You know, in the UK, it's out of fashion too, but people in Malaysia love it. You know, and so that gets back to it, this idea that be careful of your own definitions of waste. Uh, you could call it waste privilege, if you will, because uh, your way of looking at waste is certainly not going to be the way somebody else does. And that's a lifetime of constantly adjusting yourself. But if you can do that, you will start finding value where where you never expected it. All right. My last question is a rather philosophical one. But you used a term, um, a Japanese term that I had never heard that really just resonated with me. It's called uh, yutori. You write that it's Japanese for a search for time and space to enjoy life. So Yutori is something that uh, 
really emerged as almost a popular phenomenon in Japan in the last 20 years, 25 years, as Japan sort of went through its lost decade. You know, they, for years after World War II, they've gone through this extraordinary period of affluence and acquiring things and acquiring things. And then they hit this sort of dead zone in their economy. And so the people started searching out something sort of post-consumerist, post-materialist, and it doesn't translate very well, but that's what Utori is. And Can we just say what it means again? So a search for time and space to enjoy life. Yeah. Do you think that in some ways, forgive me if I, I sound like I have smoked too much weed or something, but like <laughs> there's something like very Utori about your book and the work that you do because it's about how do you make things a part of the life that you want to live and I guess integrate consumerism into your life so that it's not a hobby, but that it supports all the other things that you do. I'm so glad you actually picked up on that. I mean, this book was a journey for me, you know, in a lot of ways. It was all a journey for me to being able to let go of stuff a little bit more and to stop fixing so much of my identity towards consumption. You know, one's attachment to things, once you let go of it in a way, the life, your life can become so much richer. Adam's books are Junkyard Planet and Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. Maybe it took a virus to drive home how connected we humans are to each other and to nature. I'm very inspired by him. All right, next week. Me living the American dream and my father living the full-out nightmare and those coexisting in the same family, that is quintessentially American. Arti Shahani was NPR's tech reporter. She was also the child of undocumented immigrants. The story of her father's attempt to survive in the U.S. economy to provide for his kids and how he ended up in prison. An amazing story. I'm a child of immigrants, but boy, Arti's story blew my mind. Don't miss this finale episode of season five. It's like the last beer in the six pack. Not really, but seriously, if you have been into the show, please do me a solid and review or just rate ZigZag on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening. Those ratings can make a show, so thank you. And my lovingly tended newsletter is growing. Be a new shoot on my email, Vine. I share all kinds of weird tidbits in there, uh, like my fear of looking like a Persian Bonnie Raitt since I haven't done my roots since March. Sign up at zigzagpod.com. You can say hi to me and the team at zigzagpod on Twitter and Instagram or at Manoush Z, M-A-N-O-U-S-H. And give me some of your own weird tidbits. Inspiration for season six. Record a voice memo with your recommendation of topics that ZigZag should delve into next. Email me at zigzag at stableg.com. That's S-T-A-B-L-E-G dot com. The team that made this episode includes David Herman, Maria Wartel, Dan DeZula, and Armin Zamarodi. Lauren Reimer did the illustrations. Always also a thank you to Jen Poyant, 
and the team at TED who made this season possible. ZigZag is a member of the TED family of podcasts and comes from Stable Genius Productions. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and thank you so much for listening. You're going to cut up this watermelon? It's a beautiful watermelon. It is. Do you have a plan for reusing, recycling, or re-something with the rind? I'm going to compost them. How are you feeling about our compost strategy these days? I worry sometimes that we're overburdening our parents with uh, the amount of compost we give them. We collect our compost, and then we bring it to our parents' house. Probably use, like, more energy driving that compost than we save by composting. I don't know. Do you ever sing a compost song to yourself? No, do you? Sometimes. How does it go? It's not very interesting. It's like compost. That's it.